3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM with Thursday morning breakfast. Hey, Max, how are you going? Really good. Hey, Carly. How are you? Great. So um, if listeners can't already hear, we are recording again on Zoom. Um, so we hope that the audio quality is coming through because we know that the content is. And, yeah, we've got another beautiful show lined up here this morning. Also, first, just to flag that it's the 30th of April, which is quite wild. It's the end of April already, which means tomorrow is May Day. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Priya has lined up some really great interviews um, to kind of talk about, like, labour in this country. Mm. So what do we have first up this morning, Carly? So, um, first up, we have episode five of Liberation Loops. Um, and so I speak with Nawa Nightshade, and they're a herbalist, somatic coach, death doula, and community organiser. And their healing practice is centred on anti-oppressive practice that works to address systemic harm informed by decolonial activism on the front lines. Um, so I really enjoy how the last episode um, with Vincent Silk and now this episode with Nawa really focuses on healing. So I hope that listeners can really take something away from this during this health pandemic. And after that, we have an interview that I did with Jeremy King from Robinson Gill Lawyers, um, which is about the investigation, the, the outcome, sorry, of the investigation by IVAC into the raid by Victoria Police on the iconic LGBT Hairs and Hyenas bookstore in Fitzroy um, in May last year. Right. And then uh, we'll hear from Priya, who speaks with Nick Ferguson, a spokesperson of the United Workers' Union, about the campaign to get Australian universities to support their cleaning staff, many of whom are international students, um, instead of agreeing to mass layoffs during COVID-19. And last up, um, we have another amazing interview that Priya did with Shan Winscript and Jimmy Yang, which is on the lack of support provided to students during the pandemic. And now over to Kate with the news headlines. Australia's privately run controversial employment service agencies are set for a massive injection of millions of dollars as the pandemic pushes hundreds of thousands out of work. So new estimates from the progressive think tank per capita show that the clear winner from this pandemic will be the privately run employment agencies, which could take up to $200 million from the taxpayer as they deal with the unprecedented demand for services. So under the Job Active system, about 40 privately run employment agencies and not-for-profits receive taxpayer fees for each job seeker placed on their books and additional incentive payments when people are placed into a job or placement. The current Job Active system costs about $1.3 billion a year in what has um, previously been described as the second largest area of government after defence. The employment agencies deny this, though. So 
these systems, these services don't actually even work that often um, or that well. As an investigation into the Job Active system by The Guardian last year revealed that less than 20% of the nearly 2 million Job Active participants in the whole life of the program had not been in a job for more than six months. So last week the government said about almost 600,000 people had been granted the job seeker payment following an unprecedented um, lodge of claims and most of these people could be expected to be placed into the job active program. If you want to read the full report and the estimates you can head to the per capita website. A new survey from Melbourne Council shows that more than half of Melbourne's restaurants and cafes have shut and the City Council is being flooded with requests for small business grants. As firms try to as restaurants and cafes try to reinvent themselves to survive the coronavirus crisis. So this has forced many of the city's eateries to close or modify their business um, to just take away foods, coffees and groceries. Melbourne City Council surveyed 2,584 of the 4,036 registered eateries in the area to understand the virus's impact and they found that 1,382 or more easily 53% of respondents had closed. 61 of those businesses looked unlikely to reopen. The council have announced $500,000 in small business grants, $1 million for training and support and $2 million in arts grants last month as part of the $10 million stimulus package. And while we're here, Melbourne City Council has become the first government at any level in Australia, the whole nation, to pledge financial support for international students amid fears they are falling through the cracks because they are not eligible for government welfare. So although the figure has not been set, councillors have asked staff to develop ways to financially support overseas students, many of whom have lost casual jobs in retail and hospitality as the result of the COVID-19 pandemic. The council has also publicly backed calls by the International Education Association of Australia for a hardship fund for foreign students, which could take contributions from the council, other levels of government, universities and the private sector. Last week, Prime Minister Scott Morrison said international students and other visa holders were, and I quote, not he held here compulsory. The following day, Immigration Minister Alan Tudge said that international students had been, had been a terrific contributor to Australia, supporting Australian jobs. On Tuesday night, the Council voted to ask staff to develop further measures to support international students financially and in kind during this time. And that's it for Thursday's headlines. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. What would you like to share with listeners today? Other ways of responding to harm. Liberation. The sound shield that you could take with you to protest. Collaborative dialogue. Demystify the process. Liberation Loops. Hi, my name is Carly Beck and you're listening to Liberation Loops, a series that has been created and produced from both my bedroom and from the 3CR studios on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. This is a series that dives deep into people's practices to challenge the criminal legal system and through this series I hope to discover in what ways people are already addressing violence in our communities and in what ways people are learning to heal from harm. On today's show, you're going to hear a conversation that I had with Nawa Nightshade. 
Nawa is a herbalist, somatic coach, death doula, and community organizer. Their healing practice is centered on anti-oppressive praxis that works to redress systemic harm informed by decolonial activism on the front lines, with respect to all who have fought and lost their lives for collective liberation. And a content warning for listeners, this conversation does include content regarding childhood sexual assault and rape. Thank you, Nawa, for joining us on 3CR today. Awesome. Thanks so much, Carly, for having me. Can you first start off by telling listeners a bit about the work that you do? Okay, yeah. Um, well, I, I feel like I do a lot of things, um, and I'm definitely still, like, waiting for that to kind of, like, keep melding into this one more seamless thing. But basically, um, I'm a practicing herbalist. Um, I am a practicing somatics coach, and I do desk doula work as well. Um, and yeah, and I do that on a really community-based level, um, really responding to um, on-the-ground resistance work as well. So I, I do coach a lot of, um, you know, people on the ground, and I am on the ground a lot as well. Um, yeah, that's, that's, so it's really kind of like a, you know, that meme that talks about that, like, what kind of, um, social justice activist you are. I really feel like I'm that, like, social justice mage type thing. <laughs> Can you talk about what movement building work you do? Mm, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think when when I was really asking myself, you know, what what kind of authentic um, activism looked like, and how to really sustainably movement build. That question that really came up was who, who are my people? And I started organizing with some Asian activists and organizers. And in NAM, I do it with AAA, the Anti-Colonial Asian Alliance. And the work that we do is, um, basically supporting targeted and vulnerable and oppressed groups to self-determination. So it's really solidarity work. Um, we work really closely with indigenous groups, with um, asylum seekers and refugees, um, and just targeted migrants as well. So right now, uh, there's Migrante Melbourne, which is a Filipino activist network that's doing the Mayan Migrante. So they're doing mutual aid specifically for targeted Asian people and Filipino people. Me and some friends have, have organized to support more of those at-risk communities. And so uh, we created this group called BIPOC Talking Wellness um, as a way of reclaiming, you know, our own, our own wellness and our own peace of mind um, back from kind of like this whitewashed, super capitalistic form of like, you know, white woman yoga wellness. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And um, yeah, through that, 
we actually kind of really think of ourselves as well as like we have like this mascot of like the Care Bears that it's like it's just like super soft and you know like just yeah like almost like you're just a kid and you know like this the little kid parts of you are are allowed to be in this space and and to nourish those parts um and so we've created spaces for for BIPOC to really um receive care in that way and so we've been doing um workshops and you know care circles to support um people in the community who in in all their different ways do um solidarity work it might be through art it might be through direct action or whatever um yeah but also to to nourish and come back to ourselves um another kind of way that we do do community care is um through funding so right now we have an indeed uh indigenous seed fund for um some indigenous activists and organizers in the community just needing some extra support like with rent and bills um this was obviously before covid-19 so it, yeah but we do just want to have a seed fund as well so that anyone can access it even outside of an emergency and we kind of really do it in like a no questions asked way it's like we're not here to police or be a charity it's really just um collectivizing our resources um so that people who like whose land that we're on you know can can just access something straight away and now uh, you also do a lot of individual one-on-one work um and also group work from where you're living now um can you tell listeners a little bit about that work yes yeah, so that's really interesting actually because um before i got sick i i my trade was a gardener so i used to have like really active physical work and and then i contracted ross river virus which you guys don't know it's like a it's a mosquito virus kind of like dengue um and it it gives you chronic fatigue and like arthritic joints um and so i i literally had to stop that and it took me a couple of years of like okay trying like less physical work but still kind of active work in like hospitality and retail but even then my body was still too sick to do that and it really forced me to um to take my my healing work which I never wanted to monetize um but it forced me to really look at how that was an avenue for me to um to to do my work and so so yeah that really came up because I'm no longer able to do like like physically strenuous activity for work and so I do a lot of my consultation you know on the phone or online um and I do do in person sessions as well and obviously that's not even strenuous so so that's kind of how that came up so so basically just kind of like the really 
you know, sacred and, and sporadic internal healing training that I did with, with, with plants and somatics, um, and, and that pressure to, um, create work out of it had really burst me doing this for the community more. And so, yeah, that was really in, in response to, again, how, you know, when we do just like frontline organizing or community care work, um, how, how those are draining. And so by caring for ourselves, that allows it to be nourishing, but it still didn't address, you know, how we have these deeply embedded oppressive patterns that we've inherited from generations of colonization, assimilation, and othering. Um, and so it kind of became like a, a pathway for like decolonizing our minds, our spirits, and our bodies um, that go, you know, beyond just caring for each other. And so through plant medicine and somatics and the doula arts, um, yeah, I found that those were really um, natural and almost ancestral ways to connect with with our ancestral bodies, to connect with our ancestral spirits, and to connect with this ancient lands that we're all settling on, um, you know, on a, in a violent occupation. And with this work, it's it's really it's really safe and gentle work. So I always work with really accessible, gentle plants that are probably growing in everybody's backyard. Um, and I believe that that's part of the medicine as well is being with the land that we're on. And so if we do have a small backyard that's all paved and maybe there's just tiny cement cracks to really meet those plants and see the vitality of this plant growing through the concrete. And, you know, it might just be one or two or three of those plants in your whole place. But that's some pretty strong vitality to crack through rock um, and to make medicine from that. It can even be vibrational medicine where you're not even taking the plant, um, which, yeah, which can be really, um, it feels really colonizery as well to just take. But really for like meeting the plant as an equal and getting the medicine that it wants to give. So maybe if there's only one of it, then we just put some water next to it and leave it for four hours, either under the sun or over the, overnight under the moonlight and see if that gives us anything. Or if we have like a whole field, you know, of, of wildflowers in our backyard, then actually making tinctures out of that. Um, and so, yeah, this, this, this type of work is really, it's, it's really gentle and slow, almost subtle. Um, but I feel like it really is in relationship with the earth and, and with the land that we're specifically on, which, yeah, which definitely feels, you know, less cakey, less entitled to, and also builds, yeah, like a respectful relating that will then go beyond 
into other relationships, into how we relate with our housemates, with our neighbors, with, yeah, with other people that we might not have anything in common with. Mm. Um, yeah, and then, and then with doula work, that really came because, um, both of my parents died a year apart from each other, um, and maybe two years before that, my grandmother died as well, and and there was something that opened in me uh, in their dying process that I realized had been taken away from, you know, from our general culture that's really like, uh, like almost like anti-dying. It's like really, um, it's in denial of death and uh, it's all about not dying, you know, like words like fighting cancer or like... Um, beating, yeah, like beating illness and, you know, like sickness and, and death are really part of this cycle. And, and when we connect to our own different cultural heritage, you know, we all have different stories about, about death. And, and I think training to be a doula really connected me with, with my own ancestral ways and relationships to death that I found really healing and, and really informative and in, in how we relate to the world as living beings because of these like mythologies about death. Yeah. And so kind of really creating spaces for like the reclaiming of our own cultural death practices to, yeah, as a way of empowering um, our own decolonization work. Mm-hmm. Nawa, uh, what experiences have led you to do this healing work? Um, yes, yeah, so that's a lot. Um, I'm a survivor of childhood sexual assault Um and also a survivor of family violence, um, domestic abuse, and rape. And um, in in really uh, being forced to to heal that trauma, you know, it took me a long time. It was it was definitely many years of, of denial and and like fighting for high functionality without ever confronting my trauma. Um, but as I did, I really saw how these issues weren't just like individual things that happened to me personally, but how they're really systemic and that by engaging in healing myself, um, that that's engaging in, in the healing of my people, you know, in, in other, in other, um, yeah, in, in the collective healing of, of everyone who is harmed by domestic violence, by family violence, by pedophilia, by rapists, by, you know, um, and how all of these systems really cultivate and, and perpetuate um, perpetrators to get away with these things and to have the resources um, to enact these things. Um, and so, yeah, I've, I've really dedicated this healing work to be 
of a collective transformation um, and and that when we do that we're really coming from that place then we really get to know our own self-determination and that's why it's so important to allow other groups to do their own healing work and to self-determine what's right for them um, and as we do that to really encourage you know passing on and sharing that knowledge with our communities so that we can all create that culture and thrive together um, yeah that we can build a culture of caring for each other while we resist oppressive structures and support black and indigenous people to build a world without colonial and state violence without capitalism and without the cis hetero patriarchy that we're all stuck with right now thank you so much for sharing that with listeners now and would you like to share some um, tips for listeners on creating our own healing resources yeah totally um so uh, these are all really simple tips and they kind of cover a lot of things that I talked about already. So the first one is just sitting with the earth um, and waiting to have an experience with them. And so, you know, sitting there with the earth might encourage you to roll around on the ground and that might be like really weird but almost really listening to the pull of your body and and what it's leaning towards so if you're sitting there and you kind of feel a rock or you know like or that you're being magnetized closer to the earth allowing that body to kind of drop and follow it and, and just keep following it and then it might turn into a roll or you know it might be like a spark and and you might look up at the sky and climb up a tree. Um, but really, this kind of earthing is to have this somatic experience. And, and soma means of the body. So to, to really have an embodied experience with the living world. And allow it to tell you something. You know how when you're just like watching the grass and maybe like a butterfly floats past and, and feel something from that. So it's, that's, that's, that's what I mean by like allowing them to tell you something. It's like, it doesn't have to be a cognitive thing. It can just be a feeling. And, and when you do these things, it actually is a centering practice. So, so this first tip is for you to find and build your own centering practice. Um, the second one is to meet a plant. So find a plant in your backyard that's calling out to you. You know, maybe you thought it was annoying because it, it was growing right in that spot that, um, that trips you or something. And yeah, to just meet it. Don't go straight into, into finding out its name even. Just really, because names are like, what are names, you know? And these names are mostly in English, too, and that's not my mother tongue. Um, so to really just meet, you know, this plant as an equal and its spirit, like it's like spirits connecting. Um, and it might want you to taste it. 
you really won't harm yourself by, you know, chewing on like one leaf of a plant without knowing what it is. And if it feels like, it, you know, if your body is telling you not to swallow it, then you can just spit it out and that's totally fine too. Um, yeah, but when you taste it, it's like seeing, noticing what you're, what you're getting from chewing it. Maybe it's like giving you a lot of saliva and turning on your digestive system. Or maybe it's, um, yeah, maybe it's really like hypnotic and calming the mind. Um, yeah, and just kind of like build your own like herbal resource through that direct relating with the plants that are growing with you. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, then like going on the internet and learning about it. And, and I swear, you'll be surprised how similar your experience are with what the internet will tell you. Um, and, you know, one day the Internet will be gone <laughs> as well. So this is really us, you know, taking our knowledge back into our own hands and creating our own healing resources. So, you know, the Internet might share with you how to make medicines with it. So really experimenting with different ways of making medicines and building your own apothecary. And, and that can be a resource that you can share with your neighbors and your friends um, especially if they're seasonal medicines as well. Um, yeah, that can just be really nice. Um, my third tip is similar to plants. It's to meet your body. Um, and so we can look in the mirror and just really, you know, from like an observer kind of perspective or, in like a be your own herbalist kind of way. Like look at the look at the health of our skin. You know, is our skin pale? Is it dry? Um, uh, yeah, is it blotchy? Is it really red? Um, looking at the health of our hair um, or our nails as well. So. Um, you know, if you like to wear a nail polish, you can leave one one nail um, not painted, um, and it can be a good way of just checking your 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 blood health and your iron levels. So, if you just pinch your nail bed right now and just see how quickly the color comes back to it, then that's really great. But if it takes you know one to three seconds to come back then that could indicate like a sluggish circulation or even low iron levels. Um, you can also get to know your tongue. So the tongue is such a great resource for checking your own um, health. Um, a really easy one is if your tongue is scalloping on the edges, kind of like curling up, almost like it would make you think that your teeth are kind of, you know, crunching down on your tongue. That could be an indication of uh, low B12 levels as well. So the tongue is really great also for showing um, all the different kind of organ health. 
as well. So, Carly, you actually sent me a photo of your tongue so we can um, share with everyone what what you can kind of tell for yourself by looking at your tongue. So, um, you've got a really flame-shaped tongue. So, so every tongue kind of has like a like an elemental type of pattern. So, you know, it could be like a a flame shape would then indicate like a lot of heat and and heat is is really good it's like a lot of energy so it could um that could indicate you know needing to have a lot of activities to expel that energy but also needing maybe some nourishing things to keep you from drying out from all of that heat or um or also learning to incorporate rest in there so that um, so that you don't dry out. Mm-hmm. Um, in your tongue, I don't know if you notice, there is also like a slight um, fold on the on the left tip. Did you see that? Um, I've never examined my tongue <laughs> too closely. <laughs> yeah, so it kind of lifts up on on the left bit. Um, and, and that particular area is, um, is the area of, of your blood or your lymphatic system. So, you know, the health of like your body being able to cleanse your blood. And so it, it's kind of, um, flipped up, which would indicate that, um, it's, it's almost like overworking itself and, and maybe, um, not doing a very good job of it. So you could take alternatives, um, which uh, there's an old word for alternatives, which is blood cleansers, um, and that just helps your your blood to to really yeah to be really nourished and um, and rich and clean. The other kind of like elemental tongues would be. Um, Maybe like a, like a, a little bit like a thick tongue. And so that would be like a watery tongue. Um, so there's like a lot of fluids there. And so if it's got a really white coating, then, um, that would mean that that's maybe not, um, eliminating very well. And so it could be building some toxicity there as well because it's so watery. It's like it, it attracts you know, water into the system. And so it's really important to build channels to let those waterways out. And so that could be through opening up the pores um, so that we can sweat them out or um, diuretics is a word for things that make you pee more. (laughs) Um, And... Yeah, and so then there's these other tongues that, you know, you can look up on the internet as well. But, yeah, the tongue is such a great kind of, like, on-the-spot on way to check your health as well. I think mm-hmm. it's got only, like, a – it's got, like, a 12-hour lag, so it's really connected to the digestive system. So if you eat something and you look at your tongue 12 hours later, then that's what it did – you know, that's what that meal might have done to it. Mm. What would you like to leave listeners with? You know, really, really joining your local groups. Um, 
all of the groups that I'm in are recruiting. So AAA are looking for support and you definitely don't have to be Asian. It's not like some weird borders kind of thing. Um, Elder Support Network are always looking for um, people to support um, financially or in aid work. Um, by the way, are actually looking for some committed social media people to uh, to be organizing the seed funds that we're doing right now. Um, yeah, because all 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 this work is under resourced. You know, nobody's getting paid, and so if you really feel called to, to engage in in healing justice, then I really encourage. Um, hitting us up, I'll, I'll get Carly to include some links so that you can get in contact with us. Um, and yeah, if you've got money, send, send these groups some money as well. Absolutely. Well, Nawa, thank you so much for joining us on Liberation Loops. Awesome. Thank you so much, Carly. What an honour. And that was a conversation that I had with Nawa Nightshade, herbalist, somatic coach, death doer, and community organizer. And join us here next week for another episode of Liberation Loops. See you then. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. One of our favourite artists here on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast, Calypso, recently um, released a new track. So we're going to play that for you this morning. This is Calypso's Down to the Wire featuring Rave Tapes.
You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And that track that we just played for you is Down to the Wire featuring Rave Tapes by Calypso. Six years I've been in prison. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here with us, uh, Aboriginal Radio, and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things like And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. COVID-19 is a sickness that can spread from person to person. It can be dangerous, especially for our elders or people who are already unwell. We can all help stop the spread in our communities. Cover a cough with the inside of your elbow instead of your hand. Wash your hands with soap for at least 20 seconds after you cough or sneeze. Go to the toilet and before you make any food. Keep away from people who are sick, coughing or sneezing. Avoid going to places where there are lots of people. At this time, it is best to stay at home and away from other people as much as we can. If you're feeling unwell, have a fever, cough or sore throat, or worried about someone else, phone your doctor, clinic or medical service right away for advice. It is important to stay connected and strong as a community and keep our mob safe. Visit health.gov.au or your local health service for more information. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55am. We're now joined by Jeremy King to discuss the recently released findings of IBAC's investigation into the police raid on the iconic LGBT bookstore Hares and Hyenas last year. Jeremy is Principal Lawyer at Robinson Gill Lawyers. Thanks so much for joining us, Jeremy. No worries, Max. So firstly, could you just give us a bit of background? What happened on the night of 11th of May 2019 at the Hares and Hyenas bookstore? Yeah, so what, I mean, what happened um, from the point of view of um, Nick and Crusader and Roland uh, is they, um, uh, Nick and Roland were sleeping upstairs and Crusader was sleeping downstairs at the Hares and Hyenas bookshop, which is on Johnson Street in Fitzroy, um, somewhere towards after 10 or 11 at night. Um, uh, Nick uh, saw some lights and heard some intruders. Um, they then came into the um, uh, property uh, Nick has always been very consistent that they didn't announce themselves. Uh, he had been very worried of it being a, um, a home invasion. And I think it's got to be sort of noted that 
um, you know, a home invasion for some people might seem a bit out there, but obviously uh, these guys had been very worried about that for a long time because because Hares and Hyenas is such a landmark for the LGBTIQ community uh, that, that that was a concern that it would be a target of a of a hate crime. So just that just sort of needs to be put in context that this is not not an unreasonable thing for him to be thinking. Um, so he then tried to um, run down the stairs and out the door. Uh, they police then caught up with him um, and then have taken him to ground outside the shop on Johnson Street. And then while doing that, have um, uh, severely injured his uh, shoulder. Uh, at no time um, was Nick ever told that he was under arrest. It was no time was Nick ever told why he was under arrest. And at no time was Nick ever told that he had ceased to be under arrest. Um, uh, and at the conclusion of that, he, an ambulance is called and he is then taken to uh, St Vincent's Hospital uh, where he undergoes um, urgent surgery to try and repair his shoulder. Um, I mean, just by way of background, he's had uh, a further um, shoulder surgery uh, since that time, pretty major operation, uh, and has been undergoing um, significant rehab in respect to that shoulder uh, over the last sort of 12 months. Mm. And so the Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption Commission, known as IBAC, recently released their findings um, of the investigation they were undertaking into the police conduct during the raid. What did they find? Uh, well, what they found was um, that they couldn't make a positive finding as to whether police did or did not announce themselves. Uh, and that is sort of interesting in of itself, because you would have thought um, in this day and age, uh, that giving the technology that police have, that there would be some sort of objective evidence that they had announced themselves. So IBEC said, look, they can't decide that one way or the other. Um, uh, they then uh, found, um, unbelievably, that the arrest was lawful, uh, and they then found um, just extraordinarily that the um, force used uh, was proportionate. Um, but then in a contradictory finding, um, which I can explain in a second, uh, they did also find that Nick's human rights had been breached. Um, and the reason why they found that was because there's a specific section of the Human Rights Charter in Victoria that says um, that you've got to be told that you're under arrest and you've got to be told why you're under arrest. And they found that police had not done that. Uh, and as such, they found that um, Nick's uh, human rights had been breached as a result. And, yeah, can you – so for anyone who cares to read the um, the findings, it is pretty confusing stuff, as you've sort of highlighted. You know, how is it possible that IBAC has found that the arrest was lawful while similarly saying that, you know, the police breached um, Nick's human rights? How can they – and similarly, how can they say that, you know, there was no use of disproportionate force when we know that his shoulder was literally ripped out of its socket? Yeah, um, I completely agree with you. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I, I just think um, – and, you know, uh, legally speaking, um, it's also, in my view, just wrong at law mm. uh, because for an arrest, for any arrest to be lawful, just put the charter aside for a second, um, uh, it's long held that uh, in the criminal law that you have to tell the person um, uh, that they're under arrest and you have to say why they're under arrest. Now, there are some exceptions to that. So, for example, if someone's robbing a bank, well, yeah, okay, you probably don't have to tell them they're under arrest in that sort of circumstance if they're being caught red-handed. But that's not the situation here. Um, he, he's an innocent person um, sleeping in his own bed um, who has, you know, uh, understandably tried to flee what he thinks is a home invasion. So it's a, it's a completely different scenario. Police had 
many, many opportunities to tell him that he was under arrest and to tell him why he's under arrest. So there's this massive legal contradiction, we would say, in the findings between, on the one hand, finding the arrest is lawful and on the other hand, finding that they didn't tell him he was under arrest. And um, I, I think that's pretty hugely concerning um, for the community as a whole that IBAC would take that approach in respect to arrest. But probably what's even more concerning, I would say, uh, both for the community and um, from a legal point of view is, as you have quite rightly pointed out, how can it be proportionate force ever to rip someone's um, shoulder, uh, you know, arm from their shoulder socket? And, you know, when you look at the scans here, the damage is unbelievable. When you look at what the trauma surgeon who operated on was saying, you know, 10 out of 10 damage, um, uh, and I think for them to say that it was proportionate um, and that's okay sets a pretty dangerous benchmark for what police consider to be reasonable force. Mm. And, you know, the findings are obviously incredibly disappointing, but given the, given the outcomes we've seen from past IBAC investigations, would you say that, like, or did you find the findings that surprising? I always keep my expectations very low when it comes to any police complaints body. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I was sort of stealing myself and I've been sort of saying to Nick and Roland and Chris Adel, you know, I'm not you know, expecting a lot here. I think probably the thing I found most surprising is, um, I mean, obviously I would vigorously disagree, but if, you know, for example, we were talking before about how they said they couldn't make a positive finding about whether the police did or didn't announce themselves. Um, you know, I can sort of cop that sometimes from a police complaints body because, you know, I mean, they're not a court, to be fair. They do have all of the evidence and sometimes it's competing evidence. Um, and sometimes it is hard for them to come to a conclusion. So to a certain extent, whilst I don't agree with it, um, you know, a neutral assessment of it, uh, you know, would have been better. And that's what I'd been stealing myself for was to say that they'll, they'll make a neutral finding here just to say, look, um, it's very difficult for us to work this out. But to make a positive finding that it is proportionate forced, I think is just disgraceful, to be honest. And, you know, some people might try and argue that this is the, the exception to the rule. Could you talk about the importance of seeing the raid on the Hares and Hyenas bookstore and the outcome of the IBAC investigation in the context of everyday and ongoing racialised and violent policing and, you know, incre- the increased militarisation of policing in Victoria? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you do have to look at it in, in a wider context. I mean, IBAC doesn't look at that many cases, Max. It only mm. looks at a very select few, and it only comments publicly on a very, very select few. Yeah. So um, this was its opportunity, in my view, to really say this is not okay um, and that, you know, um, IBAC is here. We're going to objectively and impartially look at all of this stuff, but really we're going to... Um, you know, use the powers and resources we have to address, um, uh, you know, what I would say is police misconduct uh, in respect to this issue. And, you know, as I say, send a message really to say that, yeah, we're here, we have teeth um, and we're not kind of put up with it. And I think um, that opportunity um, by IBAC has really been, um, uh, really been missed. And I think, uh, that is really, um, uh, you know, that, 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 as I say, that's very sad. I've actually only take a very tiny, minuscule proportion of cases, like something like less than, I don't know, 5% or it might have been less than that of cases that are referred to them. Um, and if they're sort of not even willing to take on this, it, 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 is, it is pretty concerning for the community to say, well, how can the community really have faith that if they refer a complaint to IBAC, one, they're even going to take it, and two, that if, if this is their benchmark, you know, um, 
uh, how the hell can I have confidence that their complaint is going to be dealt with? Mm. And, you know, the fight is far from over. Um, what are the next steps? Yeah, so um, the next steps are that we have written to the Director of Public Prosecutions mm-hmm. um, and asked the DPP to um, uh, look at uh, potential criminal charges against the officers involved in this case. Uh, and I suppose um, uh, we've also uh, certainly looking at what are our options in respect to the IBAC decision itself because it is so legally contradictory uh, and uh, having a review of that. And then also there's going to be um, civil litigation uh, against Victoria Police uh, in respect of this incident as well. Mm. Because obviously it's one thing for, you know, um, a uh, complaint body to uh, make these findings, but it's another thing when, when you know, um, uh, you've got a legal team surrounding you and we're, you know, um, forcefully uh, and vigorously putting your case um, in front of a court. So uh, it'll be a very different kettle of fish and, in my view, um, likely a very different outcome. Um, and also just wondering, you know, how have Nick Rowland and Crusader responded to the findings as well as the, the LGBTIQ community more broadly? And, and I guess also how can, how could listeners support, you know, Nick Rowland and Crusader at this time? Yeah, um, I, I think that, uh, they have, uh, reacted to it, um, as ever with, you know, humanity and real grace and, um, you know, they're, they're amazing in terms of the way that they dealt with it, to be honest. You know, if that was me, I'd probably, crawl into a ball and go into a corner but these guys you know they just get on with it they deal with it they're you know obviously shocked in disbelief and horrified by it but um they still they still get on with it and see the bigger picture um and that's you know pretty incredible not that doesn't it doesn't happen every day of the week um in terms of supporting them um you know obviously there's been a huge outpouring on social media of support for them that's been fantastic and i think you know, um, uh, if you can go online and, and buy a book from Hairs and Hyenas Bookshop, um, that's also a fantastic way uh, of uh, supporting them at this time as well because obviously um, the bookshop is, is shut at the moment uh, because of COVID-19 issues and uh, if you really want to support them, as I say, jump onto the Hairs and Hyenas uh, website and um, and buy a book. Yeah, awesome. And just briefly before we wrap up, um, I'd love to talk briefly about a new website that's just launched in relation to mis- police misconduct during yeah. the COVID-19 pandemic called covidpolicing.org.au. Are you yeah. able to speak to, you know, why this website was created and what it's aiming to do? Uh, I mean, I can in that, um, I can certainly give you a comment on it. Um, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, I, I'm probably going to I can't really, yeah, I mean, obviously someone like Anthony Kelly. Is yeah, yeah, I was, yeah. Yeah, I'll try and chat to Anth next week. But if you could just even just a brief comment to include at the end of each to let people know about it would be rad. Yeah, so I mean, I suppose right now um, uh, policing in in across the, the nation, but you know also in Victoria, um, is it is a bit tricky at the moment because the law regarding what you can and can't do is very murky. It's very grey. Um, there have been numerous instances of police taking. Um, what I would say is an overly heavy-handed approach um, in respect to um, policing. Um, and if you look at the statistics, um, there appears to be a pattern emerging that obviously people in um, lower socioeconomic um, areas uh, are being uh, more greatly impacted by this and also people who are vulnerable and disadvantaged um, who might be homeless or uh, things like that are going to be um, greatly disadvantaged by uh, these laws and by police's uh, enforcement of them. Um, and because they are very significant powers that police have, 
uh, it's critical that they're monitored. It's critical that uh, if there is misconduct or if they do step out of line, that they're held to account for it. Um, and uh, that's why this website um, uh, has been created by uh, a whole bunch of people, including the Police Accountability Project. Uh, I think Amnesty International has been involved in it, and I think the Grata Fund has been involved in it. And, you know, it is a fantastic website, I would say, to um, anyone in the community, um, anyone in the legal profession, if a client comes to see you or if you have an interaction with police um, during these times that, as I say, um, uh, is not appropriate or there is an element um, where they have overstepped the mark, then you should be jumping on this website and you should be uh, reporting it straight away because uh, if you don't, um, then we can't collect this data together, we can't put the picture together and we can't advocate um, to make sure that, um, you know, uh, these laws are carefully monitored and try to keep police in check in respect to these laws. Mm. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, before we wrap up, is there anything that we haven't had a chance to touch on that you wanted to add? Yeah, I mean, I suppose you did ask a question about kind of the wider, how it fits into the wider scheme, and I probably didn't mm. answer that as well as I could have. Um, I mean, the only thing I would say is that, you know, you can't view this in isolation because you should be also looking at, obviously, the inflation nightclub right mm. um and uh obviously the same team involved in hands and hyenas was involved in the inflation nightclub raid um and that's the critical incident response team um and there was another incident in brunswick on sydney road also involving the critical incident response team um uh, where they broke a man's jaw and clearly there seemed to be some problems with the critical incident response team um and use of excessive force uh, and, you know, obviously one of the findings that the IBAC decision did make was to say that they were writing to the Chief Commissioner about failings by cert in these cases regarding um, their policies and procedures and not according with them and not, you know, keeping in line with them. And I do think um, that is a concern of, of the, the communities you have, that there, are this, there, there is this team, unfortunately, um, that does seem to be uh, repeat offenders in regards to these issues. Um, and... You know, I mean, IBAC has written to the Chief Commissioner, but in my view, a better message to be sending would have been to say that the force was excessive and that the arrest was unlawful. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for joining us on Thursday Breakfast this morning. No worries at all. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Are you a person with a disability? If you are an Australian citizen, a permanent resident, or a recently accepted refugee or humanitarian entrant under the age of 65, you are able to apply for access to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. If you have met access requirements, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, also known as the NDIS, will help you access the government-funded supports you need. To find out more, visit the NDIS website or go to your nearest NDIS partner office and ask for a language interpreter to help you. NIDA and NDIA are sponsors of this radio station. All right. And now we're going to go into a song by some local musicians. The band is called Izzy and this one is Moon. The earth lies in front of me goes down for night to recover Your face that hides behind the moon 
peeks through each and everything You stood in the highest peak If you go, I will not heal Stay right here, don't go away Keep your warmth that hand Moon, what's the name? Moon, what's the name? Drew me a sketch in the night sky I'll burst the lights off herself, herself Oh, got me to you Moon, what's the name? Moon, what's the name? Lost in the ocean of clouds I'll burst the lights off herself, herself Listening to 3CR 855 AM, a Thursday morning breakfast. And that song that we just played for you then is Moon by Izzy. Now we go to a conversation that I had with Sean Winscript and Jimmy Yang, two graduate researchers and casual workers at the University of Melbourne, about the lack of support provided to graduate students during the pandemic. Hey, Sean and Jimmy. I really appreciate you both joining me on the show today. Could you both first start by briefly introducing yourself, maybe Sean and then Jimmy? Sure. Uh, thanks, Priya, for inviting us um, to speak on the show. Uh, I, I'm Sean Winscript. I'm a, a final stage PhD uh, student from Melbourne University. I'm also a casual worker at the same university and I, um, an NTU delegate at Melbourne Uni. Hi, Priya. I'm Jimmy. I'm a PhD student in history at the University of Melbourne. 
Um, I'm also a casual tutor and a member of the NTU Casual Network. Um, so as graduate researchers, uh, you're both definitely facing some specific concerns related to COVID-19 and university inaction around pandemic-related supports. So could you tell us a bit about how this is affecting the grad student community? Yeah, uh, so basically we're concerned uh, about the serious issues facing graduate researchers and graduate workers since the um, beginning of the COVID-19. We're also concerned about the university's um, attitude towards um, the researchers. So um, most of the um, graduate students by now have experienced uh, uh, significant and sustained uh, disruptions to their research and to their lives. We've seen a number of reports published in the past few weeks on this um, specific topic. Uh, basically, students are um, they're unable to uh, access on-campus uh, research facilities and uh, resources. Um, that's one major issue. But also, they are um, because the university uh, uh, shut down, they can't access essential data, labs, um, archival materials, um, uh, etc. Um, working from home is also an issue for many uh, graduate researchers because they, don't, they just don't have adequate, you know, they don't have the internet, for example. Many of them don't have um, a laptop to work at home. And um, many uh, graduate researchers have lost casual teaching. Um, they've lost their um, income and they are overloaded with all sorts of um, unpaid work uh, during the, you know, the transition to online teaching. Um, but more seriously, um, they are also facing, um, you know, they have, there's a significant jump of, um, caring responsibilities for many, uh, researchers. And, uh, many of them are also experiencing housing issues, um, you know, racial abuse, uh, domestic family violence, and, um, you know, serious mental health and physical health impacts. And these, uh, these are not short-term issues because, you know, since the crisis is expected to, to last for much uh, longer, uh, students are expected to suffer uh, for longer too. But disappointingly, the University of Melbourne, uh, despite the severity of the, the situation, the university has basically offered uh, their graduate researchers nothing real but um, they've been telling students to keep up with their uh, deadlines or uh, if they can't, they need to restructure their uh, research plans as if that's possible um, given the current situation. So it's this, you know, dismissing attitude from the university that's a problem. They've basically been telling, telling us to continue as usual or, you know, it's business as usual even though that, you know, there's no corner of the world has been untouched by this pandemic. Yeah, definitely. And I can attest to that from firsthand experience. Um, so yourselves and some other grad researchers have been involved in drafting an open letter that responds to these concerns. So could you um, explain a little bit about this campaign and what you're asking for? Well, we've been left with no choice but to go public with our demands. Uh, there have been numerous attempts by students to meet university management, but to no avail. Uh, and so a group of us um, have put together an open letter demanding uh, a universal extension for uh, for PhDs and, and master's students. We want this to be an automatic six-month extension uh, for candidates at, at all stages, not just those before three years. Uh, all students 
should just be given uh, a, a, an automatic six-month extension on just on a recognition that there is no normal during coronavirus, um, and we want to disrupt the logic of normality during a pandemic. Uh, we, we're also demanding 60 days paid leave uh, for, for all uh, students and the possibility of further leave if required, importantly, without bureaucratic uh, hurdles. Um, there have been various iterations of an application form that the, that the, the university have required. Um, at one point, the, the university asked students to supply um, a, uh, a bank statement and also a stat deck. And this, this is just you know, this is just absolutely unfeasible um, in the current circumstances. Um, and, you know, as Sean outlined before, the crisis affects everyone across the board and the university's measures need to reflect that. These changes, moreover, need to apply to both domestic and international students. Um, our, our demands have no, uh, recognised no nationality or citizenship. Uh, so, so far we've had 500, uh, almost 500 uh, signatures, mostly from PhD students, but also very encouragingly from some staff and, and supervisors across the university. There have also been a number of universe, um, organizational endorsements, including from the Graduate Students Association, the University of Melbourne Student Union, and also the NTU Casual Network. So we do encourage people to sign on. Awesome. Yeah. And as you, as you both mentioned, there's a significant overlap as well between the university's academic workforce and grad researchers, um, where grad researchers are being doubly affected as students and sessional staff members. Um, so I was wondering whether it would be possible to go into some of the concerns of how university staff and student issues intersect when it comes to graduate researchers um, during COVID-19. Uh, my position is there is no sharp distinction really between university workers and graduate uh, researchers um, at the current uh, conjuncture. Uh, many PhD students, myself included, are casual tutors. I'm teaching two classes at the moment um, while also doing my PhD. And as both uh, university staff, casual staff, and as PhD students, we are precarious. Uh, and we've made, been made more precarious by the, uh, the coronavirus crisis. So in a sense, our demands for universal stipend extensions uh, are a claim for uh, uh, livability um, amidst a, a crisis uh, that has made everyone more vulnerable. Uh, and the most vulnerable category of, of, um, of, of graduate researcher um, at the moment is, of course, international students. And international students are not just students, they're also migrant workers. Um, they, they are our colleagues, they're members of the union. Uh, they are part of the university. They are not cash cows. Um, there's also no sharp distinction here between the interests of permanent staff and, uh, and HDRs. Uh, the university's bureaucratic requirements uh, have, uh, have resulted in uh, greater staff workloads, and there is beginning to be some discontent among, uh, among permanent staff. And we're also, um, I think, at, at a more general level, uh, we have an interest with, a common interest with permanent staff in simply saving our jobs right now. We're all facing the very real likelihood of unemployment next semester. The government have refused to ex extend the JobKeeper wage subsidy to the university sector. Uh, and uh, this is really the logic of the, the neoliberal university coming full circle. Uh, decades of, of reliance on fees, both domestic and international, but fees uh, have will uh, lead to the really the, the collapse of the entire sector within the next few weeks. So this, we are all part of a common fight. I think we need to save jobs. We also need to, um, to, to ensure that we guarantee uh, 
conditions of livability for all students and staff right now. Mm, absolutely. Um, so where will you be taking this letter next and what can listeners do to support the cause um, for grad researchers? Mm. So we are planning, uh, we will be delivering the letter to the university uh, pretty soon, if not tomorrow, um, definitely in um, this week. And we're also looking um, into the possibility of publishing the letter um, uh, in terms of um, uh, showing solidarity from the listener uh, listeners. I think uh, if you can, please sign up on the uh, letter um, uh, if you're if you're if you're a Melbourne University student or um, staff, um, we also think it's important to um, fight uh, for graduate researchers and workers through the union. Um, so it doesn't matter which campus you're from, um, you know, join your union and fight for for um, precarious workers and students through the um, through the NTU, and that's basically what what we've been doing through the NTU Casuals um, Network. And more broadly, I think um, we we encourage people at other um, universities uh, or other campuses to do the same, to um, basically challenge the university's um, attitude towards graduate um, students and workers in uh, during the COVID-19 COVID pandemic, so that um, maybe in the near future, there's a possibility for us to, you know, join forces um, to fight for um, tertiary, the tertiary education sector. Absolutely. Thank you so much, um, both of you, for speaking with me today, and I'll see you on the front line. You just heard me speaking with Sean and Jimmy, two grad researchers and casual workers at Melbourne Uni, about supports for grad students during COVID-19. Okay, now we're going to go into another track by local artist Sophie Grothy. This is her new one, Evolve. Say you a danger. I say that I am too. I say that I am too. I might be better than you. You say you a nice guy. You say you're the one for me. You say I'm the one for you. You always got me confused. If I give you my heart, would you break it up now? Or would you protect it, baby? If I give you my heart, would you break it up now? Or would you protect it, baby? I know this I be on, cause he thinks that he a slight guy I'ma turn your whole mood to a shy guy
Listening to 3CR 855 AM, and we just played for you a vol by Sophie Grophy. Next up, I speak with Nick Ferguson, a spokesperson of the United Workers Union, about the campaign to get Australian universities to support their cleaning staff, many of whom are international students, instead of agreeing to mass layoffs during COVID 19. Hi, Nick. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. No worries. Um, so perhaps we can start off with you introducing yourself and letting listeners know a little bit about the United Workers Union. Yeah, sure thing. So I'm an organiser with the United Workers Union. Um, it's a very big union, about 150,000 members across Australia. And I work in the area of the union that covers cleaning and security. Um, and so that's brought me into contact with a lot of great guys and girls working in um uh, universities, both as guards and as cleaners, but um, we've had a lot of drama with the cleaners at the moment. Yeah. And I'm really interested in the effects that COVID-19 is having on labour rights for um, workers in those situations. So could you tell us yep. a little bit about this before we jump into talking about the petition? Okay, sure thing. So um, uh, the cleaning industry, like maybe 90% of the people that are working in the cleaning industry in general um, are uh, recent migrants, um, and maybe 40% of those people are um, uh, international students. Um, and so, um, you know, I mean, officially we, we all sort of have the same uh, labour rights um, and we have the same access to the law, but in these industries um, there's a really big imbalance in the bargaining power of um, workers, particularly as an individual. And so um, um, in a lot of instances, sort of basic rights that people take for granted um, are very special for people, you know. They're rarely found. Um, a lot of times, um, you know, cleaners that are international students um, will be actively told by managers and supervisors, don't you forget you're an international student. Do you know what that means? And when they say that, what they're saying is they need the money because if they don't have money um, from that job, they have nothing um, and the manager has the ability to cut that off and cut off their ability to live. And so, you know, with that power, um, managers can extract a lot from people. And so it becomes a big question, what are the labour rights for workers like these guys? 
Yeah, definitely. That's really concerning. And also, considering that many of those uh, that are employed as cleaning staff at major universities in Victoria are international students themselves, as you said, it seems to be really um, a perverse move when the same, like these same unis are so vocal about the revenue that they're going to be losing from international students themselves who are prevented from continuing their studies. That's right. So, um, you know, universities have basically made a decision to um, stand down uh, most of their cleaners, um, and that means, you know, most of them being international students have nothing. Um, now, what, uh, you know, at least Monash has said when, you know, they've been asked about this is that uh, that wasn't a business decision of Monash University. Um, because all these cleaning um, arrangements, they've outsourced to um, third-party contractors. But, you know, fundamentally, the universities, um, you know, they own the buildings. The buildings need to be cleaned. They're paying for them, um, and they've got international students cleaning their buildings, and they've made a decision uh, not to have those guys cleaning anymore. And so, you know, this... This is an industry. They, I think, 2018, reported by Victoria, uh, made 11.8 billion dollars, and now they're leaving. Um, you know, the uh, the source of that 11.8 billion dollars um, with an inability to survive. Absolutely, and I mean, um, the universities can't just escape complicity in this by saying that they've gone to contractors and the contractors. Um, responsibility. So I'm, I'm wondering yeah. which universities are doing this and um, what actions have the United Workers Union taken so far to address the concerns of people employed as cleaners? Yep. So we've got members at um, Monash, Deakin and Latrobe that have been stood down um, and are now without pay. And last week, Melbourne University um, cleaners were told that they're going to be stood down from May the 4th. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of stressed people there and a lot of people that see um, themselves now in a situation without the ability to earn money, to pay for rent, to pay for food. They don't have an ability to go back to their home countries either because, um, you know, the economic state there means that um, they're shut down, people can't get flights into there, um, and so they're without any support. Now... These guys, um, these workers have decided they don't want to stay silent over that. They want to stand up and they want to say something about that. And so a lot of them will start making um, videos to support a petition that they've got out calling for people to um, uh, support the idea that Australian universities should be uh, taking responsibility for these international students, that they should be um, making sure that they're being paid again. Yeah, so um, they've got that petition and what they want people to do is to support them by signing that petition but also commenting on the um, uh, social media of the universities because, you know, when universities, they're, they're kind of big um, uh, commercial enterprises now and what they are trying to do with outsourcing is to um, divorce themselves from... Um, the responsibilities that they have for the people that work at universities. And so if people go out there and they, they don't let them get away with this, um, they'll be supporting Neuroshan in getting, and other cleaners in, in um, getting a way to live through this crisis. 
And I was going to ask how listeners could show their support for people that are employed. So you mentioned yep. um, posting on social media, signing the petition, which we'll put a link to in our show notes. Okay, um, awesome. So is, is there any particular targeted messaging that people should be sharing around this? Um, I think, you know, that um, uh, Australian universities need to support their cleaners. They need to fund the cleaning companies so that they've got um, – money to, to to pay these cleaners because, um, you know, without money coming through the universities and supporting the cleaners, then um, uh, these guys are going to have no ability to survive in the community. Now, universities might say that we don't have money from the government, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, they've made $70 billion from international students in Victoria alone, and at the very mm-hmm. least, they should say, well, we've got a responsibility to these um, cleaners and we need the government to fund us to meet that responsibility. They should be on the side of the international students cleaning their schools. They shouldn't be leaving them alone. And if people are commenting on social media, um, they should, um, uh, you know, make them realise that. Yeah. Uh, Was there anything else that you wanted to share with listeners about this petition or about any other ways to support? Um, I mean, the only other way of support is um, uh, by joining their, their own union because um, solidarity is about recognising, you know, that the, the effort of these guys to, um, uh, to work together to get some bargaining power is actually a problem that we've all got and we all need to work together um, uh, to solve that. And so if people are not union members, they should join their union um, and to support the – that's – you know, supporting these people in a very real way because then it's joining the, the fight that these guys have. Um, and then they should su- su- the, uh, sign the petition and get onto social media and um, uh, be as vocal as these cleaners. 100%. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Nick. That was a conversation between myself and Nick Ferguson, a spokesperson of UWU, about supporting uh, university cleaners during COVID-19. What a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419-8377. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager, or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. 
We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. You're listening to 3CR. We really are in unprecedented times, and 3CR, as your local community broadcaster, is trying to do our part to minimise the spread of the coronavirus throughout the community. At the front of our minds is protecting the most marginalised and vulnerable, but we are still here, and we'll continue broadcasting 24 hours a day with radical alternative content throughout this period, but things will sound a bit different. Some programmers will present their shows on the phone, and we'll be finding creative ways to bring you our regular programming. So stay tuned, stay safe, and be kind to each other. So that was a packed show this week. Uh, we heard from Episode 5 of Liberation Loops with Carly and Noah Nightshade. Um, we heard an interview with Jeremy King about the Hares and Hyenas raid. Um, we spoke with Nick Ferguson from the United Workers Union about supporting cleaning staff at universities. And we also spoke to Sean Winscript and Jimmy Yang um, about supporting graduate students during COVID-19. Incredible show. Thank you so much for tuning in to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 855 AM. What a great show. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Great show. Thanks for listening in. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.